Oscar Dahl, I'm here with Matthew Knudsen, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown number 73, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. George Roy Hill's only entry into the top 100 here, 1969, iconic Western mats. Uh, what do you got to say about Butch? I'll know that we've really made it as podcasters when uh, people are like... <laughs> Who are those guys? Yeah, Matt. So this is, uh, we're getting down into the second quadrant of this uh, AFI Top 100 list. And we're hitting a bunch of sort of well-known, I guess, populist classics here. Butch Cassidy is sort of the idealized version of the sort of serial comic Western. I mean, you're more into the Western genre than I am. You know, your feature film is a Western. Butch Cassidy is 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 sort of the, I grew up as like, this is the Western that, that you show to people sort of as an entry way into the genre where do you think this is just sort of you know devoid of of how good we think it is uh where where is this in the genre and why is it so sort of important it's got to be one of the five most beloved american westerns of all time right i mean i know that's a big that's a big statement considering the the breadth of the genre but this is a beloved beloved movie i mean for my entire Pretty much my entire childhood, my father claimed this was his favorite film. Wow. Sometimes he'll mention Rudy. Sometimes he'll even mention the next film we're going to talk about, uh, Shawshank wow. Redemption, because uh, my dad's a big TNT. <laughs> but yeah, pretty much my entire childhood, it was, it was all Butch Cassidy all the time. And it wasn't even a film that we really watched that often as a family. It was just something he would quote all the time, mention all the time. He, he you know, constantly, who are those guys? And the fall will probably kill you. And you think you, you, think you use enough dynamite there, Butch? <laughs> It was uh, it was a constant in in our household, and it was one of my grandfather's favorite movies. It just I don't know, just got talked about a lot. It seemed like it was the kind of film that was especially accessible because, like you said, it was somewhat comedic. It was in color, and it had two of the biggest movie stars of all time burning up the screen. I, I guess accessible is the word I would use, even though I it's it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Um, watching it again recently, I'm struck by what a quirky movie it is, right? Like, it really, really is a, a product of the 60s. Yeah, I, I'm sort of struck by how dissimilar this movie is from the other classic westerns, or the other westerns that are, are sort of uh, put at the top of of the all-time greatest lists. And and I wonder if, if that is the reason why it's sort of an entry point or a, a movie that, that people just generally, even if they don't love Westerns, tend to gravitate towards. I mean, it is weird. It is quirky. It is funny. And it, and it just banks entirely on the, on the chemistry 
of these two dudes. And I will say, it is more sort of stylized in ways than I than I remember, especially at the beginning, especially at the end, yeah. um, especially the transition into Bolivia with all the sort of it, it, it's a it's a it's a big decision to just yeah. do these uh, sort of sepia tone black and white photographs to show off how they get from uh, the West down to South America. Just because you mentioned it, you want to briefly get into that? Uh, why they made the decision stylistically, stylistically to do that? Uh, well, I, I assume budget. They were shooting Hello, Dolly! on the 20th Century Fox lot at the same time. And that movie had a much bigger budget. Uh, went on to become a colossal flop. But uh, because they had the budget to build all those sets... Basically, George Roy Hill and those guys just asked, um, I think it was, I want to say Gene, did Gene Kelly direct Hello, Dolly? Uh, anyway, he asked the, the Hello, Dolly crew if they could just shoot on those Hello, Dolly sets on Hello, Dolly's day off. Huh. So they just brought uh, still cameras with them, and they just bounced around that set, got in costume, and just shot stills of Catherine Ross and Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford acting like they were on vacation in New York huh. in, you know, 1890s New York or whatever. Yeah, so did they have... Did they- originally have have scenes of that transition from uh, on the way to New York and, and down to Bolivia like did they even if even if there weren't scenes there must have been like montage of them having a good time in New York on their way to Bolivia I, I'd be shocked if Goldman had conceptualized it in the script as a bunch of still images but it really kind of works right mm-hmm. uh, in, in spite of itself like this whole sepia tinged idea the movie begins and ends with this color palette as well yeah so again something else i would love to do some research in to see whether that was george Roy Hill's idea or whether that was william goldman's idea or whether that came late in the game yeah because because uh, it's really a, it's a defining decision to bookend the movie with that very specific washed out color palette. Yeah, I mean it is an efficient choice. It works really well. It gets them down there. It's it's a fun little break in the you know latter half of the film. It works and uh, you know the, the music's fun and it just plays into what you mentioned earlier, which is the the sort of quirkiness of this movie and in the, in the you know not take things too seriously. <clears throat> I think the other famous scene is the raindrops keep falling on my head scene. Yeah, kind of a bonkers little scene <laughs> in the beginning of the movie. It's very anachronistic and doesn't yeah doesn't really fit with what we think of of a western, uh, but it's delightful nonetheless. You know, all the Burt Bacharach stuff across the board is one hundred percent anachronistic intentionally. Obviously, I mean yeah. it's really a, a score completely rooted in the late sixties. And I'm trying to think if there's another example of of a we- of a contemporary western that a- approaches it this way. I don't think there's really a, a peer for you know stylistically appear for this film it really kind of like exists in a universe of its own um but it completely uh connected with people in 1969 and obviously still resonates it's relatively high you know it's pretty good spot on this list uh but it was the highest grossing film of 1969 enormous hit and you know nominated for a whole bunch of oscars so well it it seems odd and it, it doesn't obviously the star power makes a lot of sense and the sort of weirdness allows it to endure in, in, in ways that sort of more generic movies won't and, and didn't. In that regard, like, I get it. But also, watching it again, I don't know I don't know if this is sacrilegious, Matt, but it, it feels feels kind of weightless, right? It feels kind of light. Okay. It, it doesn't feel like it should be among sort of these, these high-powered, like, greatest films of all time. Maybe it's because 
for me, the humor really hasn't aged particularly well. I mean, I don't find the movie that funny. I mean, that being said, like this is a delightful film, and I like hanging out with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Sure. To me, it comes off as as just a as just a fun little oddity. For me, it just doesn't have the the weight behind it. Does that does that make sense? I mean, you asked what like what this movie sort of like represents for the genre. It is representative of the end of an era, which maybe inflates the film's sort of like cultural or historical significance to a degree that the actual just uh, kind of uh, empirical quality of the movie can't live up to, especially, uh, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. Almost 50 years. They'll turn 50 next year. But I think it's significant that the film came out in 1969. We talked about The Wild Bunch a few episodes back, and this movie came out three months after The Wild Bunch and covers a lot of the same thematic territory. As a matter of fact, apparently Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids gang wasn't actually called the Hole in the Wall gang. They were called the Wild Bunch. But because the movies were being um, produced sort of simultaneously, these guys had to punt on the name and change it to Hole in the Wall. But they cover a lot of the same territory, and because this movie comes second and guess has a bigger cultural impact than The Wild Bunch, at least it was a bigger hit. It kind of represents the end, I don't know what you maybe you'd call it, like the second age of the Western. I'd have to like crunch the numbers a little bit, but this is is the end of a certain type of Western, and it's appropriate that we go out in a blaze of glory, that basically both The Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are both sort of gunned down in very similar fashion, as if the genre is saying... We're done with a certain type of hero. We're going to move on into something a little more sort of like esoteric, more rooted in a um, post-Vietnam War era reflection of the genre. Yeah. And I think that the way that they go out at the end is so sort of iconic and appropriate and romantic in its own way. Like in The Wild Bunch, we actually see, you know, fucking William Holden get riddled with bullets. Whereas in this, we get to catch them in the aforementioned still frame right before they get shot. Right? Yeah. It's it's a beautiful thing, it is. and so I think I think the significance of that sort of like plays into the mystique of this film, how legendary this the pairing of these two movie stars is, and sort of the, like the lasting cultural impact of the movie. But I, I tend to agree with you. It's not a movie I revisit often. It's a hell of a good time while you're watching it. It's a it's a pleasure to watch. It's very watchable. But yeah, it's a little dated for sure. I mean, the music is just it's the music is so jarring. Yeah, it really <laughs> you know? is. Like it's just. <laughs> It's just it puts it's just such a tonally strange film, not unpleasant, just odd. Like, again, there's just really nothing that I can sort of compare it to besides making a few connections with with the Wild Bunch. But have you seen um, The Old Man and the Gun yet? I, I have. I have not. I, 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 I'm excited to see it finally, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I have not. Have you? I have. I enjoyed it very much. I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm a big David Lowry guy. Yeah. It's explicitly a spiritual sequel to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, it even opens with the same uh, title card as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> uh, which is most of what follows is true, right? Yeah. Same hobo font, same everything. Nice. So it's clear David Lowry is very much uh, trying to uh, trying to refer to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and it will be appropriate if it turns out to be Robert Redford's final film. It'll be a nice bookend to an illustrious career because, for all intents and purposes, this is Redford's breakout film. Um, before this, he had made The Chase. This property is condemned. Barefoot in the Park with with Jane Fonda, but uh, Downhill Racer and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid both come out in 1969 and really announce Robert Redford as the next big movie star. Obviously, Paul Newman was obviously pretty established. 
Yeah. Originally, the Sundance Kid was to be played by Steve McQueen, who ended up dropping out. And according to legend, the names were flip-flopped in the title when Steve McQueen was still involved. It was the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy. <laughs> and then when uh, when Steve McQueen dropped out, Paul Newman obviously was the bigger star than Redford, so they flip-flopped the names. And it sounds a lot better. Yeah, it does. I mean, if for no other reason than it's alphabetical, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid really flows off the tongue. You can't really overstate the charisma of these two and the chemistry that's so easy and it's crazy to think that they only really made the two movies together this and the sting because we really think of them as a you know martin and lewis-esque uh pairing but we're really just basing that on these two very very iconic films and honestly i i know this is like you know sacrilegious and i know this might be controversial hot take as much as i uh, appreciate this film and as and as enjoyable as it is i prefer the sting and I'd put the sting on this list, and I'm I'm shocked that it's not on this list, honestly. God damn it! You you took my main talking point here. Mike. Oh, sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say George Roy Hill movies and these two guys. Like, I think the Sting is far superior, and yeah. I'm also surprised that's not on this. I would just I would just make an easy swap. Take this take this movie out and put the Sting in. I I don't want to be dramatic about this. This is an important <laughs> film, and it's a good movie, and it's a very you know it's a beloved movie. So we need to take these kinds of things into account. But yeah, I, I rewatch the Sting at least a couple times a year, and I rarely go go back to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But it has I mean it has iconic moments. I mean the they keep going back to the train. They blow up the train with too much dynamite. They get chased around by Lafors and all those guys. They jump you know the they jump off the cliff. Thing, yeah. The yeah all that stuff is great i mean that's really where their their chemistry is uh firing on all cylinders the the aforementioned sort of like traveling montage i think is still pretty iconic and then the the climactic scene where they're basically uh mm-hmm. assaulted by the entire bolivian army all that stuff is great i really like everything in bolivia actually um mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a cool different setting than than we're used to and you know it's, it's a lot of fun and it doesn't really uh it doesn't really stall towards the end and so yeah, i'm with you it's a very enjoyable movie of course um, I'm just not sure it uh, it has the weight to, to deserve to be on this list, especially when you look at you know just a cursory glance here. I think there's only th- there are only three westerns ahead of it on the list of top 100, and that's uh, one of which is coming up soon. Shane, High Noon, and The Searchers, and Unforgiven, and Unforgiven. Sorry, okay, yes, so four. Do you think this is the fifth best American Western of all time, Matt? You know, I think I just mentioned the fact that at the top of this conversation, I thought it was one of the most, I don't know if I, maybe I use the word beloved. Yeah, maybe the most iconic. I know that that's kind of a fuzzy word. Yeah. But no, not best. Certainly not best. I mean, I, I honestly prefer The Wild Bunch over this movie, just in the category of 1969 Westerns. Yeah. So no, no, I, I don't necessarily, but I balk at the idea of it not being on this list. I, I, I don't know if there should be a list of 100 greatest American films of all time time that doesn't include Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm not sure if I want to live in that world. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, but you know, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of movies from 100 to 80 that I would definitely put ahead of this movie, of course. Sure. Uh, and that's fine. A, a sort of perfunctory placement in the in the 90s range, I would have been totally okay with. Just all these movies here, Blade Runner, Pulp Fiction, French Connection, Goodfellas, Titanic even. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking, you know, you're you're speaking as somebody for whom those movies, are, you know, those more contemporary films are much more beloved to you, more fresher in your mind because yeah. of when you were born, probably. I mean, it would be interesting to talk to somebody who actually saw this in the theater mm-hmm. and then has revisited again recently and could talk about its sort of like lasting legacy. So so for someone seeing in the theater in 1969, like what was so different and unique about about it just the just the chemistry you think or, or how it sort of subverted the genre a little bit the color the the style i mean w- what was it that you think struck 
struck audiences back then. I think it's an interesting genuflection before the altar of this genre, while also in, in an almost Bonnie and Clyde kind of way, saying, let's just burn this whole thing down. Okay. Right? Yeah. Like, let's just, let's completely burn down all of the signifiers of this genre. Maybe it's time to start from scratch. I mean, I don't think the movie is overtly saying, let's kill the Western right here. But in so many words, I think it's saying it's time It's time to like let these legends ride off into the sunset. Yeah, okay. For lack of a better term. And, uh, and I think there, there's just something really moving about that last scene. I, I'm not sure if I would necessarily point to it as my favorite scene in the whole movie, but there's something iconic about sort of lionizing heroes in such a way from the standpoint of the Western, but also from the standpoint of sort of like cinema and movie stars on the whole, but then also in terms of like legends of the West, like guys who didn't go by their actual names and may or may not have actually been gunned down in Bolivia, may have actually survived that and made it back to the States and lived a long and and fruitful life. I mean, we don't know what really happened to these guys because they are just like mysterious out, you know, legendary outlaws. And the movie treats them as such while, you know, filtering it through this very zoom lens, heavy Burt Bacharach scored uh, relic of the sixties. I did some research, Research after watching the movie, and it really is inconclusive whether they whether they actually <laughs> yeah. died. Believe it. There's a lot of they might still be alive. A lot of, well, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> conflicting reports yeah. uh, on whether they got back got back to the West and, and lived out their lives, and a lot, a lot of uh, accusations of plastic surgery and, and, and you know, fabrication <laughs> of their own deaths was really cool. Um, another thing that always felt a little anachronistic, and maybe this is just me, about the movie is Paul Newman just do- doesn't feel like a guy who would exist in the West. You know, he, he feels a little just more complex and, I don't know, metropolitan and smarter. Th- I, I, he just doesn't seem like a guy that should be in the West. I don't know. Okay. I don't know why I feel like that way. He's so fucking good in this movie. Uh, he's very chatty, you know, whereas uh, Redford is obviously very closed mouth. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate so much about the film and, and one of the things that I think contributes to being so enjoyable, you mentioned that you didn't find it that funny and I don't necessarily laugh out loud during the film, but I do find William Goldman's pithy stuff to be so like right there on the verge of potentially being anachronistic, but so just witty and inventive. This is the second William Goldman film we've done in what the last five movies. I mean, we did um, All the President's Men yeah. a couple films ago. And uh, I mean, he really was was flying high in the late late 60s and early 70s um, and obviously, you know, kept going through The Princess Bride and honestly wrote one of my one of my favorite Westerns, which I think is actually very, very influenced tonally by this and nobody ever talks about it. Part of it's because the leading man is kind of a controversial figure now, but I fucking love Maverick, man. Maverick was <laughs> one of my favorite Westerns growing up and I just revisited it again recently and it really fucking holds up. It's it's very funny and, um, and Mel Gibson and uh, Jodie Foster have surprised uh, surprising amounts of, of sexual chemistry in it. So I really think that that is kind of like tonally, in a lot of ways, a, a spiritual sequel to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that it doesn't take itself very seriously at all. It's much go- it's much goofier than this, but I think it's still it's still quite uh, quite watchable. I like Maverick. I hate the poker scene, though. It's just so stupid. You're one of those um, sort of purist poker players who just can't handle the idea of somebody pulling a uh, ace of spades yeah. right when they need it to make a uh, to make a royal flush right like you probably have issues with the casino royale uh, hold them scene as well yes right? i do it wouldn't i mean <laughs> and they in casino royale especially they play it so well for most of the time and then they fuck it up with like the climactic one 
just you know do a little cursory research and figure out what's realistic like it's not that freaking hard speaking of poker um this movie opens with a really fun poker scene it's a great character introduction for robert redford yeah uh it's shot over the shoulder it's shot over someone's shoulder onto redford's face redford of course is very closed mouth as i mentioned before and so he's not talking very much it's all sort of happening in the eyes do you know the actor he's playing against in that scene the actor that they're whose shoulder they're shooting over no i don't this is a good fun fact very young sam elliott oh hell yeah and when they reverse on him he obviously doesn't have the iconic uh his iconic mustache and stuff so you can't really recognize him he's young he's clean shaven he he hasn't his his voice hasn't dropped to that iconic octave yet yeah but that's sam elliott and this is where he met Catherine ross uh who he would go on to marry 20 years 18 years later something like that wow but Catherine ross was married to conrad hall at the time this movie was was made the cinematographer yeah, on this yeah. film legendary cinematographer and apparently um he would let Catherine ross operate the camera on occasion which she really 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 enjoyed until george roy hill caught him letting her do that and he scolded the both of them he was not cool at all with a woman operating a camera on his set and for the rest of the shoot apparently Catherine ross and george ray hill not each other's biggest fans and uh, as a result uh, her favorite scene in the film is the raindrops keep falling on my head bicycle sequence because that was all shot second unit because there's no sound so george ray hill wasn't on set for any of that stuff <laughs> so that was the stuff she enjoyed shooting the most because she was not a big george ray hill fan huh She's wonderful though. She's this is what this is two years. This is two years off of uh, the graduate. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. I mean, how do you feel about the central kind of like Jules and Jim love triangle thing? I think it's I think it's fine. It's pretty chaste, right? Like it's not. Uh, there's not a lot of intrigue and there's not a lot of broken hearts, but it. Uh, it makes sense. She's getting what she needs from from both people. You see the chemistry. You see why why it works for them, and it, and it makes sense in, in this time period and this genre. But she, she is delightful, and it, it's sort of it, it's it's a little odd she didn't have a much bigger star career in the in the seventies after those two movies. Yeah, she, she's really delightful, and it's it's obviously this is a. I mean, she's super cute and good chemistry with both the, uh, both the guys. So I yeah, I, I always wondered why. I mean, do you have any insight into that? Did she just sort of why? She she didn't have a bigger career yeah. yeah i mean after this you know i guess the stepford wives is her biggest thing yeah and then yeah you take you look at the rest of her career and it's a lot of tv movie stuff so no i don't because I, clearly she was like one of the beauties and, and and you know like one of the big movie stars to come out of the late 60s i mean uh, her role in uh, the graduate you know obviously a star making role mm-hmm. but no i don't have any insight maybe she and uh, sam elliott just settled down and she was cool to do just do little TV movies in her TV off time, stuff. Sure. Yeah, while he was, uh, you know, doing voiceovers about beef being what's for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I really don't know, but I mean, she's she's wonderful in this movie. She's obviously, you know, she's she's an important part of this. I mean, it is, I guess, Butch and Sundance, but she's clearly the third prong of this triangle. And uh, and I think it's a very effective and very moving scene when she sort of casually mentions that she's that she's thinking of going back before them. Yeah, because she's presaging. She knows which way the wind is blowing, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, she says before they go down there, "I'll come with you. I'll you know, I'll cook for you, and I'll um, you know, I'll sew up your wounds, but I'm not." Gonna gonna watch you die 
and mm-hmm. uh, and she's good to her word. I mean, she when she knows they're about to die, she leaves so she doesn't have to watch it. Before we finish this off, let's talk about George Ray Hill for a second. I'm wondering how you know, you mentioned that this movie is sort of killing the Western as as we know it in 1969, or, or just showing off that it's that's dead. Like that what we knew before is gone. Like that opening scene you're talking about, the over the shoulder shot is very stylized, but also sort of more in line with a classical sort of Western tone. Sure. How overt do you think George Roy Hill was being? Like, how on purpose do you think his subversion of the genre was going into it? Do you think that was sort of his main point, or do you think that rests more on Goldman's shoulders? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I definitely want to try and restrain myself from being retroactive history guy, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Because, I mean, this is 1969, you know, obviously Woodstock's going to happen, the Manson family's going to go on their rampage, and there's a lot of things we ascribe to 1969 in terms of it being the end of an era. You know, Easy Rider comes out uh, this year, uh, Peter Fonda says we blew it, all this stuff, and so we look back on this now, we're just like, oh man, look, everybody knew, everybody knew which way, you know, how things were going and what was ending, and this is the end, the hippies are, are dying in this year. It's easy for us to say that looking back at all this stuff now, obviously they're shooting this movie probably in late 1969. Mm-hmm. So to try and answer your question, how cognizant these guys were being of what they were doing, it seems to me that at the very least, Goldman is making a statement about outlaws like this and about their role in American history. Mm-hmm. It seems to me he's a smart enough guy and he's, you know, he's self-aware enough, I think, to be making that kind of a postmodern statement. Yeah. Whether George Roy Hill is or not, I don't know much about George Roy Hill, to be perfectly honest. I mean, before this, all he's really got is a, a bunch of TV, uh, you know, Hawaii, thoroughly modern Millie. I mean, it's not like he was, I don't even see any, like, episodes of Gunsmoke or anything. In it. Like, it's not like he had a lot of experience with the Western. Yeah. So it seems to me that these two guys, I mean, I don't think uh, William Goldman had written any other Westerns before this. So to me, it seems like two guys kind of like coming at this very much from a we're quirky 1960s filmmakers who are, and this is our take on this genre that's been done to death by this point. You know, to cast two guys who were um, obviously vanguards at the time is is significant. So, and to have Burt Bacharach do the, do the score and to have, you know, somebody like Conrad Hall shoot it. I mean, to me, it seems like a bunch of very exciting artists who were at the top of their game in the late 60s are all coming together to give you their take on this genre, which turns out to be a pretty darn offbeat take yeah like i'm not sure if i want to see this movie made by john ford no you, you don't you or john sturgis or, or something or you know I, I don't think i want that movie you want someone open-minded and you know looking at the rest of like after this movie what george roy hill did like what a weird director yeah slaughterhouse five the sting slap shot world yep. according to garp and he, his last film was funny farm like what a yeah. freaking bizarre filmography this guy had and it looks like before he got into film he was a big time theater guy so that makes sense yeah uh, that's where he came from. No, no real TV stuff. Interesting dude, and uh, I think we both agree the Sting is is better. I don't see how you couldn't agree. I mean, I think the Sting's just a freaking classic. So, yeah, it's a little odd to me that it's not on the list. But maybe it's just because it's lesser known, the lesser known movie of the two. Although you know, this might have been the highest grossing film of 1969, but the Sting won Best Picture. 
You know, yeah. this movie, this movie, Last Best Picture to Midnight Cowboy, a different type of Western. I, I don't know. I feel like the Sting still has at least as much cultural significance as this. And, you know, all the Scott Joplin, Marvin Hamlish stuff. Let's just say they make for a really great double feature. Sure. Absolutely. And this watching this movie, even though it's very enjoyable and I certainly don't dislike it, this watching this movie makes me want to go and watch the Sting. Just because we usually do best best scene. Do you have a favorite scene in the movie? Is it the waterfall? Is it the you know? I think the is waterfall it... is the classic. I really I really like that first scene. Okay, the over the shoulder, the the poker scene. I think that's that's a great way to start it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a strong choice. And then the scene that follows that is probably my favorite, which is the. Um, which is the fight in the corral. Yeah. Someone say, someone count one, two, three, go. I mean, it really, it just establishes, it establishes that relationship and establishes the way they look out for each other. I really, I really enjoy that one. And it also establishes Newman's kind of like puckish approach towards life. Yeah, exactly. um, But then I also, I also love, you know, when they keep yelling at Woodcock in the train and when they <laughs> yeah. keep, you know, <laughs> when he, you know, he's just being a good company man. He just, he's not trying to be a dick about it. He's just like, I'm sorry, they paid me to do this. And then they keep adding more dynamite to it. Mm-hmm. Think you use enough dynamite there, Butch? It sounds to me like you're thinking this doesn't deserve to be on the list. I would be okay with it being off the list. I would be okay with it in the, in the, in the 90s. Like I said, I, I, I think it has the star power and the, iconography to to warrant it but uh i i don't think it should be it should be here in the in the you know number 73 spot i think it needs to be on the list but it's too it's, i agree it's too high and would you be okay with a just a pure swap swap in the sting oh just to take it out completely as opposed to have both the sting and butch Casty on the list no no i, th- I think it's got to be there I, I think given I'd, I'd prefer to have both the sting and butch Casty on the list but if i had to choose between swapping for the sting <laughs> No, but I, I think it's got to be there. I think it's got to be on the list. I think it's an, I think it's an important movie, even though I wouldn't necessarily call it one of my favorites. Okay, final question: If the Sting were on the list, would seventy three be a good spot for it? Absolutely. Okay, I agree Lo- with that. Hold love me some Sting. Okay, um, we're gonna do a bonus episode where we talk about the Sting. Obviously, <laughs> we should just a yeah. sub app. All right. Well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies AFI Top One Hundred Countdown Number Seventy Three: Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Say goodbye, Matt. Adios. Ring. Drops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling But there's one thing I know The blues they send to meet me Won't defeat me It won't be long till happiness steps up Falling on my head But that doesn't mean My eyes will soon be turning red Crying's not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain By complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying
shelter to read me.